1: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman.
3: Useless Information
1: So a few weeks ago, my wife and I returned from a trip to Paris. Anyone who knows me knows that I am not a world traveler. It's actually kind of unusual that this year I've been to Costa Rica on a school trip and now I've been to Paris. But I've known my wife for 14 years and she's been begging me to go and finally she got me to go to Paris. And I have to say it's a wonderful city and I really enjoyed being there. We rented an Airbnb about 25 minutes by train outside of the city. It was wonderful. It was in a small quaint town and it was right on the Seine. We woke up Every morning, and there was the beautiful river. But the one thing that we didn't anticipate was that it was August. And in August, many people go on vacation. And because a lot of people go on vacation, that was when the train system decided to work on the tracks. It seemed like each day that we were there, it got worse and worse and worse. So earlier today, my wife and I recorded a segment to explain exactly what happened, at least on the worst day. So we had to change the settings on my microphone a bit so it would pick up both our voices, so you will hear a little bit more static. And not only that, we had nothing planned. So you'll hear we're just kind of stumbling our way through it and cutting each other off like a typical husband and wife. So why don't you to take a listen? So Saturday was, without a doubt, the worst day. We get to the bus station and we get our tickets. And, yeah, we punch them and we're waiting for the train and it doesn't show up and there's only one person there And what does he say?
0: Well, he had just learned that in fact, we had to take a bus that there was no train Going into Paris.
1: So one other woman shows up and we're all standing there waiting for the bus, but the bus never comes So he runs across the street to the supermarket and he comes back and what does he tell you?
0: Well, he just learns that the bus is coming, but it's at a different spot. We all have to run to the bus stop so that we could make the next bus uh, ride.
1: So we go climbing this really steep hill to get to this bus station. We're not even sure we're in the right spot, and we just made it, and we take the bus in. But that actually wasn't the worst part. So we are coming home and we get to the main station in Paris, which is what?
0: Saint-Lazare is how they say right. it. Right, I can't pronounce uh, very yeah. well
1: in French. Yep. And there's something really unusual for a Saturday, and what is that?
0: Well, it, it, it was incredibly crowded, and it, much more than on like rush hour during the week. So the minute I saw that, I knew something's up. Maybe people are on strike. It's There's going to be a problem.
1: So the one thing I noticed is I looked up at the departures you know up on the big gigantic screen and the previous train they're only running every half hour i noticed it didn't have a platform listed and i said to you maybe it never left and that's why all these people were there basically train after train after train weren't going so all of a sudden they announced the next one what platform it's going to be on and what happened
0: oh gosh it, it it was like a mob just racing to the train which i'd Experienced in the past. I, yeah, I knew it was gonna happen.
1: Yeah Thousands of people were running towards this one train. There was no way this train could hold all these people We got lucky because we were near the train and we got a seat But everyone else forced themselves on and it was like packed like sardines. Do you agree?
0: Oh, yeah, we were we were Happened to be standing at the right platform so we could just rush right on up and other people just came after us so
1: so we get on the train and we go about three stations, and it's really, really hot on this train. It's like it's an older train; it has very, very poor, uh, you know, air conditioning circulation. And we get about three stations, and there's something in French. I have no clue what's going on. What? What were they? Based well, on, they
0: were explaining that there were mechanical problems, and that they were going to have to people were going to have to get off the train and wait for another train.
1: So they took us up what about two or three more stations. They par- basically stopped the train and everybody, all thousand people or 800 people that were on this train, had to get off. We're standing there on the platform and there's no other train coming to pick us up. The next one that came by was just as back, so there wasn't another single person getting on this thing. So, the, I mean, I don't, I again don't speak French and you're trying to translate what's going on, but this poor transit worker this one guy's dressed in blue describe what was going on
0: oh well the the people were really uh, getting down on him terribly as if he was the cause of all the problems which he wasn't and um uh yeah it was a pretty sad situation
1: so eventually i don't know maybe about an hour later a train shows up and takes us up only a few stations to where we have to transfer to the bus and that's what town
0: the town was poissy
1: and we need to transfer to the bus and since the buses doesn't usually run, usually you take the train the whole way. They have transit workers there to tell you where to go, to which you know for which bus you should get on. I'm not exaggerating. It's probably what ten or twelve passengers there, right. and how many people were working there?
0: You know, there might have been eight in red vests and two bosses in blue vests, and they also had a flag saying uh, something like mass transit uh, substitute.
1: Right. So there were basically more workers there than there were passengers. Almost, so, yes. <laughs> and, and we get on this bus, and the driver's not the usual driver. He get he gets on the bus, but then the boss gets on the bus, and what do you hear?
0: Right. He makes an announcement, and I have to admit, when I heard it first, I thought I couldn't have heard that correctly. Because he said, is there anyone here on the bus that can direct the driver uh, and show him where to go because he doesn't know the area at
1: all. So two women come forward, and they agree to sit up front and tell the bus driver where to drive. And then what? You, the what did the one woman say? One
0: woman just said, "Oh, I'm Madame GPS, which means I'm Mrs. <laughs> GPS tonight." <laughs>
1: So, the, oh. so then we take off, and luckily we were the first stop because what happened next?
0: Well, that, that, what was even worse is that the guy acted – he it was as if he couldn't drive or he'd never driven uh, a bus before. So he was uh, zigzagging in the road. He was banging into the branches of a tr- the trees. It, it was crazy.
1: Yeah, I thought we were going to maybe die on, on, the, on that uh, bus ride. But anyway, we got home, and that was the worst night. And – It was such an interesting story that I decided to tell today another story related to trains. So thanks for being on the podcast.
0: You're welcome.
1: And I'll let you go. Okay. The one thing we skipped over in that story is that when we got to Poise, you had to pass through the turnstile and put your ticket in to let you out of the subway. Well, my ticket worked fine, so I must have had an older one. But my wife and my niece who was with us, their tickets didn't work. So they had to jump the turnstiles so they can catch the bus. It wasn't until the next day when we were trying to go back into the city that we found out we were sold the wrong tickets. You see, we were staying in a town called Valennis-sur-Seine, and we asked the woman for those tickets, at least my wife did in French, and she sold her for a different town that was simply Valennis. They were even spelled slightly different, but not enough to notice. The next day, when we found out we had the wrong tickets, my wife tried to get our money back, but no matter who we spoke to, they said, no, you have to mail in a form. But of course, we're leaving the country, so that was kind of impossible. So we're out $50 because we were sold the wrong tickets. So it seemed fitting that I should tell you the railroad story that I had been telling my wife and niece while we were in Paris. It involves purposely smashing two locomotives head-on at high speed for entertainment purposes only. The brainchild behind this crazy idea was a Chicago Railroad Equipment Salesman. He was also a former railroad conductor, and his name was A.L. Streeter. He attempted to have one of the railroads in his home state smash the two engines together, but none of them were interested. So Streeter approached the financially strapped Cleveland, Canton, and Southern Railroad, and they agreed to give his idea a chance. The plan was to put two of their older locomotives back in service, get them in tip top shape, and then just crash them at high speed. They were going to do this on the railroad's Waynesburg track, which is located southeast of Canton, Ohio. Streeters set the admission price at 75 cents, which doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot, but adjusted for inflation, that's about $22.50 per ticket he anticipated that at least 20,000 people would attend the event. Events were set up along the track to keep customers safe, but more importantly, to ensure that they paid their way into the venue. When smash-up day July 20th, 1895 finally arrived, everything was set to go. Train loads of spectators arrived every 15 minutes and the crowd, well, it just began to swell. The two engines now renamed Protection and Free Trade, you know, after the opposing political beliefs of the time, well, they sat on the tracks awaiting word that they should back up to their starting points, open throttle, and then just barrel towards each other. Well, that would never happen. It was estimated that only 200 people paid to see the show. The rest, well, they opted to either watch from the distance or simply bypass the fence. Unable to get the crowd back behind the fence, Streeter canceled the planned wreck for safety's sake. But that also meant that Streeter lacked the funds to pay the railroad the $2,400 fee that they had charged to destroy the trains. That'd be about $72,000 today. Streeter personally, well he lost an estimated $800 or about $24,000 adjusted for inflation. In 1896, the Columbus-Hocking Valley and Toledo Railroad will they built a brand new recreational park to entice people to ride its rails on weekends. They chose a picturesque location approximately 25 miles or 40 kilometers south of Columbus, Ohio. They named the new destination spot Buckeye Park. In addition to making use of a natural spring lake for swimming and boating, They also built a toboggan slide, a few buildings for entertainment, and the obligatory playground for the kiddies. Those all sound like fine bits of entertainment, but what they really needed was something big to promote their new pleasure destination. You know, something huge, something that would instantly grab the public's attention. Something like smashing two locomotives into each other on opening day. Today we celebrate Memorial Day on the last Monday of May. But back in 1896, most localities celebrated it on Saturday, May 30th. And as a traditional kickoff of the summer season, it was also a great date for a railway collision. The railroad's PR machine was put into action at full throttle. Newspapers across the nation ran story after story on the planned crash, and it was promoted as a scientific experiment. You know, one in which observers armed with their notebooks and Kodak cameras could observe a real train collision under controlled conditions. Now, the fact that the railroad charged the audience to ride on their trains to the event, that they had to pay an admission fee, and of course buy refreshments from their booths, well, that was only supposedly being done to cover the cost of the experiment. Yeah, right. Who are they fooling? Scientific experiment, my foot. Estimates of the crowd and attendance for the big event varied from a low of 18,000 to a high of 25,000 people. Two obsolete 35-ton locomotives were chosen for the impending duel. Formerly known simply as numbers 12 and 21, the locomotives were rechristened the A.L. Streeter and the W.H. Fisher. Fisher was an official with the railroad. Each would pull three cars and a caboose to their demise. Prior testing had determined that the two engines accelerated at different rates. As a result, the WH Fisher was placed 3,600 feet south of the starting point, while the AL Streeter was at a point 3,000 feet north. Using a newfangled invention called the telephone, maybe you've heard of it, the two conductors were given the signal to open throttle at 4.10pm. As the trains started toward each other, the conductors jumped off to safety, but to keep the illusion of impending doom, Streeter placed two dummies dressed in conductor garb onto each train. And then WHAM! The two trains smashed into each other within 100 feet or 30 meters of their calculated point of impact. The locomotives both rose up into the air and came to rest in an almost A-shaped configuration. One could still clearly read the names A.L. Streeter and W.H. Fisher on the coal cars while the trailing gondolas well, they were totally destroyed. Unfortunately one injury did mar the event. T.P. Peck, who was the chief clerk in the general passenger office, he was struck by a flying bolt and suffered a compound fracture below his right knee. Yet, Streeter's staged train crash was, well, a smashing success. It was deemed so successful that officials in attendance from other railroads recruited him to do additional crashes in Chicago, Minneapolis, and New York. And as they say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Soon other promoters were planning their own train crashes, One of these was a man named William George Crush. He had been hired in August 1893 by the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, which is better known as the KATY, the K-A-T-Y, KATY. He was hired to be their general passenger agent for the entire state of Texas. Now that's not a job you hear much about today, but in the heyday of railroads, this was a position of incredible importance. It was W.G. Crush's name that appeared on just about every ticket, poster, timetable, or advertisement that the Katy produced during his tenure. Crush was basically the invisible wall between the riders and the upper management at the railroad. Mr. Crush believed that if the Katy could stage a stunt similar to the one that had just been completed by Studer at Buckeye Park, the Katy line could grab a stronghold on the Texas railroad market. On August 6, 1896, a formal announcement was made in the press that the Katy would be purposely colliding two trains together. And once again, this was all to be done in the name of science. Each train would consist of a locomotive, a tender, and this time six cars. As the trains smashed into each other at high speed, the data collected could be used to build safer locomotives and cars. I'll say it once again. Yeah, right. Scientific experiment, my foot. Scheduled for four in the afternoon on September 15th, the railroad chose the perfect spot in West Texas. West is located about 18 miles or 29 kilometers north of Waco. The reason they chose this spot is because the track in this location was perfectly straight and flat and then a valley was formed by three hills which created a natural amphitheater. In an August 13, 1896 interview with the Dallas News, Crush stated, quote, there will be no harm done save the smashing to pieces of two 40-ton passenger engines, a dozen cars and the tearing up of several hundred yards of track and roadbed. The engines will be used for scrap iron if they are damaged beyond repair, and the track will be cleared and mended in a jiffy. He continued, the day before the collision, the track over which the engines will run will be timed so that the point of contact may be definitely ascertained. In this way, we will know almost within 10 yards where the meeting will take place. By means of a telegraph wire put up for the occasion, the engineers will be given the signal to start and each throttle will be pulled simultaneously. The engineers will remain on the engines until each has attained a speed of 10 miles an hour, at which point they will pull the throttle wide open and step off. Crush went on to further state, Railroad men from all over the West will be on hand to see, and photographic observations will be taken every second for 10 seconds before the collision. Engine builders are now deeply interested in furnishing engines with appliance which will lessen the shock of collisions and consequently make them less dangerous to human life. When questioned about the cost of the head-on collision, Crush said, quote, All told, about $20,000. Of course, there will be some salvage. $20,000. That's nearly $600,000 adjusted for inflation. That's a monstrous price to pay for just one single collision. So how could the railroad cover such an enormous expense? Well, that's very simple. The only way for most people to get to the show is via the Katy Railroad. Tickets range in price from a low of $2 from Austin to $3.50 from Houston round trip. That sounds like a bargain, but translate that into modern values, and round trip tickets to the venue were going to cost you somewhere between $60 and $105 each. Add to that all the money spent on the site for food, drinks, sideshow entertainment, and it becomes fairly clear that if the predicted number of people attended this event, the Katie stood to earn a lot of money. Crush said, quote, Ever since we decided to give the exhibition, public interest in the matter has increased, and in order to let all see it will run excursions from all along our lines at rates say less than one fare for round trip. In fact, from all indications there will be 15,000 or 20,000 people present to see it. The place selected for the exhibition is a natural amphitheater and nobody will have any trouble in viewing the entire exhibition. We will make it a regular picnic day. Preparation of the crash site began immediately. Crews laid down four miles of track, built a grandstand for honored guests, two telegraph offices, three stands for noted speakers, and an observation stand for photographers and members of the press. A large tent was borrowed from the Ringling Brothers Circus so they could use it as a restaurant. For water, two wells were dug on site, while arrangements were made to transport 16,000 gallons of artesian water that was cooled with ice, of course, from Waco. And lastly, they set up a large carnival midway, complete with drink stands, game booths, and the obligatory hucksters. A.D. Arbogast, he was the general foreman of the Cady's Texas Bridge and Building Department. He stated, quote, We are now at work on 30 privilege stands to be arranged in midway plaisance style, like the Chicago plaisance. In these places will be located all the amusements on the ground. There will be freaks there from all over the world, and a better Plaisant show has never been seen in Texas. This feature alone will be worth going to Crush to see. As of September 3rd, Crush was still confident that an enormous number of people would attend the event. Quote, My estimate of the crowd remains undiminished. We will have at least 25,000 and probably as many as 40,000 people on the ground to witness the collision. We are making arrangements to handle 40,000 comfortably. Nobody will be discommoded. So far as experience can provide for the peace and safety of the passengers, it will be done. The Katy Repair Shop crew set to work rebuilding two of the line's outdated locomotives. Chosen for total destruction were engines 123 and 124, which were now renumbered 999 and 1001, respectively. The 999 was painted bright green with yellow stripes, with other colors of the rainbow highlighting its cowcatcher gears and trimmings. The 1001 was painted a contrasting red color, and both had the Katy logo emblazoned on either side. To further promote the collision, the two locomotives were placed on tour and displayed in towns throughout the state. Two of the Katy's finest engineers were chosen to run these engines. The 999 was to be driven by engineer Charlie Stanton with Frank Barnes as his fireman. Charlie Kane would be at the throttle of the 1001 with fireman S.M. Dickerson to assist him. Then finally, the big day came. On September 15th, train after train pulled alongside a newly constructed platform that measured 2,100 feet in length. That's .64 kilometers. The signs at the depot indicated they had arrived at the town of Crush, Texas. That's a town that exists for only a single day. As anticipation grew, the planned start time of 4 p.m. just came and went. That's because more and more people just kept unloading from the trains. Estimates in the newspapers at the time placed the attendance at somewhere between a low of 24,000 and a high of 30,000 people. You can be certain that the bean counters for the Katy must have had really, really big smiles on their faces. You know, from a financial point of view, the crash that was about to occur at Crush, Texas was a smashing success. But as you'll soon learn, that smile would soon be wiped from their faces. The Dallas News described the smash up as follows quote, At 5 o'clock, the two trains met at the point of the collision and they were photographed. Then one of the trains backed up the hill on the north and the other one up the hill on the south. Everything was now ready. The smoke was pouring from their funnels in a great black streak, and the popping of the steam could be distinctly heard for the distance of a mile. People were standing on tiptoe from every point of vantage, trying to see every movement of the wheels that were so soon to roll to destruction. The officials of the road were grouped about the little telegraph office, not 50 feet from the place of waiting for the whistle, which would tell them that the trains were ready to start on the fatal journey. At 10 minutes after 5, Crush raised his hat, and a great cheer went up from the throats of all the people. The article continues, The rumble of the two trains, faint and far off at first, but growing nearer and more distinct with each fleeting second, was like the gathering force of a cyclone. Nearer and nearer they came, the whistles of each blowing repeatedly, and the torpedoes which had been placed on the track exploding in an almost continuous round like the rattle of musketry. Every eye was strained and every nerve on edge. They rolled down at a frightful rate of speed to within a quarter of a mile of each other. Nearer and nearer as they approached the fatal meeting place, the rumbling increase, the roaring grew louder, and hundreds who had come miles to sea found their hearts growing faint within them and were compelled to turn away from the awful spectacle. The two trains barreled towards each other at an estimated speed of 50 miles per hour, or 80 kilometers per hour, and then wham! As you can imagine, the noise was deafening. The locomotives crumpled inward as the trailing cattle cars were just reduced to splinters. There was a moment of silence, and then, when it seemed like it was all over, the boiler of the 999, it exploded. Flying missiles of steel and wood, both small and large in size, began to rain down on the crowd. It didn't matter if you were young or old, male, female, rich or poor. There was simply no way to escape from the locomotive shrapnel. So we're going to pause here for a moment to hear from the sponsor of today's podcast. But when we return, I'll tell you what happened next. Welcome back. We're gonna pick up the story of the monster crash at Crush just as the shrapnel was falling from the sky onto the crowd of spectators. Emma Frances Overstreet, the wife of a local farmer, was watching the crash from what seemed like a safe distance of a 1,000 feet or 305 meters. Suddenly she was hit by flying debris. Hitting right behind her right ear, she was immediately knocked unconscious and she died from her injuries. And then there was Ernest Barnell of Bremen, Texas. He was perched up in a tree even farther from the crash site and was struck in the head by a flying chain. The chain hit with such a strong force that it became embedded in the tree. It's pretty amazing. Sadly, he also succumbed to his injuries the following morning. One man who was close to the crash was photographer Jarvis Dean of Waco. Dean was in the photographer's stand attempting to snap a picture when he was struck in the eye, which sadly doctors were forced to remove. In doing so, they discovered that he had been hit by a bolt that measured 2 inches in length by 3 eighths of an inch in diameter. That would be approximately 5 centimeters by 9.55 millimeters. Luckily for Dean, if you can call it that, the nut was still attached to the bolt and it snagged on his eye socket, which prevented the bolt from becoming lodged in his brain. Louis Bergstrom of Waco, another photographer who was on the platform with Dean, also sustained slight injuries from the shrapnel. And then there was 14 year old Roy Kendrick, who was also from Waco. He was struck by a flying piece of timber, which caused a severe leg wound. His father would later file a lawsuit against the railroad for $500. There were other injuries reported, but none were fatal. One man lost a piece of his chin, another had a scalp wound, while yet another was struck in the chest with incredible force by a piece of timber. A man named John Bessie had his arm lacerated by a piece of steel, which he just bent over, picked up, and took home as a souvenir. He wasn't alone. Even as people were suffering, thousands of people ran towards the wreck and they grabbed a piece of it to commemorate the event. It was all over, but getting home wouldn't be easy. The trains were slow to arrive, and when they did, it was utter chaos. Information was difficult to come by, the train cars were packed nearly to the point of suffocation, and people ended up in the wrong town. Yet, by 11 p.m. that evening, the last train pulled out and the town of Crush, Texas ceased to exist. The next day, it was learned that there was one more casualty to add to the list, although the locomotive smash-up could not be blamed for it. John Morris, a livery man from Ferris, he was killed after he fell between the coach and the caboose of one of the outbound trains. Unfortunately, he got run over by it. The Katy quickly settled all damage claims brought against the company. Jarvis Dean may have lost an eye, but he was able to resume his photography career. He ran a rather humorous ad in the Waco paper that read, quote, Having gotten all the loose screws and other hardware out of my head, i am now ready for all photographic business. Dean, Waco's high-priced photographer. One would think that this would have been the end of intentional train collisions, but it was not. Just one week later, it was announced that the Kansas City, Fort Scott, and Memphis Railroad planned to do a repeat performance on October 6th. 20,000 people attended that event and not a single person was injured. Smashing up trains proved to be such a crowd pleaser that Iowa resident Joseph Connolly decided to make it his career. Between 1896 and 1932, head-on Joe, as he was called, staged as many as 73 train wrecks at various fairgrounds across the Midwestern United States. Amazingly, Not a single person was injured during any of these shows. Only Mr. Crush had the misfortune of having it all go so very wrong. A number of recent articles state that the Katie immediately fired Crush only to rehire him the next day after they saw how popular it was in the press. I was unable to find any mention of that in the newspaper articles that were published in the days after the crash took place. William George Crush retired from the Katy in 1940, having worked for the company for 46 years. He passed away three years later on April 12th of 1943 at the age of 77 years. Today, the crash at Crush is basically forgotten, you know, excluding a couple of historic markers that serve as reminders for those who visit the area. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
3: If you're thinking about buying an automobile, either new or used, you'll be interested in this little scene between young Tommy Taylor and his wife Betty. They have an important date this evening, and they're dressed in their best for the big event. Let's listen as they're coming out of their house. Do you look wonderful tonight, Bets.
4: You're looking pretty fancy yourself, Mr. Taylor. Wouldn't it be swell if we didn't have to ride a crowded streetcar? Oh, of course it would. But I don't mind, dear. Well, I know it's a lot of trouble to finance a car these days. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Say, wouldn't it be great if that snug little sedan there belonged to me? Now, don't be daydreaming. Come on, we've got to hurry. Oh, how about driving our own car? Our own? Well, how, when did you? Yes, sir, she's all ours. And talk about an easy way to buy a car and at the lowest possible cost. Explain yourself, young man. <laughs> <laughs> Ever hear of the Chicago Motor Club? Certainly. Well, I had the club to thank for a really convenient method of buying a car. I talked to the automobile finance department and honestly, Bets, I never heard of such a swell deal in my life. I had no idea a man could save so much trouble and red tape and dollars on buying a new car. Would you believe it? I saved $25 just because a friend of mine told me about the service and protection he got through the Club Automobile
3: Finance Department.
4: Oh, isn't it wonderful, Tommy? Aren't you proud?
3: You just bet he's proud. And so were thousands of other car owners who have consulted the Automobile Finance Department of the Chicago Motor Club before they bought their new or used cars. You see, this 32-year-old club is dedicated to the motoring enjoyment of you and your family. And it's the club's pleasant job to see that you get the most for your money. Better get that free booklet right away. Your name and address on a penny postcard is all you need. Just send it to the Chicago Motor Club, Chicago, or its nearest branch office. Or call Franklin 1818 right after this program. No charge or obligation, just valuable information, free. Information on many club services that save you many dollars.
1: That commercial for the Chicago Motor Club is from the October 2nd, 1938 broadcast of the Wayside Theatre radio program. It was a romantic comedy that ran for only 9 episodes, that's it. This particular episode was titled Romance in Old Monterey. The Chicago Motor Club was formed in 1904 with the mission of making streets safer for automobiles. Initially, that mostly meant that they pushed for better roads to drive on, but it wasn't long before they expanded their role. For example, before governments assumed total control of the task, the Motor Club was well known in Chicago for posting traffic control signage, particularly around schools. They also taught children how to be safe around cars, even going as far as providing them with alternate safer routes to school. But the club wasn't just about school safety. They offered a $50 reward for the arrest and conviction of anyone who left the scene of a car accident. Members of the Chicago Motor Club received a wide range of benefits that included roadside assistance, maps, travel advice, and driver safety programs. If that sounds a bit familiar, it should. The Chicago Motor Club has been a branch of the AAA, you know, the American Automobile Association, since 1906. So Here's a question for you. Last week we celebrated the Labor Day weekend here in the United States. That signals both the end of summer and that it's time for the kids and me to go back to school. So can you name the first state to officially make Labor Day a holiday? We're going to take another quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, I'll have a few more shorter stories for you And I'll let you know which state was the first to make Labor Day an official holiday.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. In other news, here are a few shorter stories that were in the news years ago. On April 29, 1933, six-year-old Bertha DeScheffi of Yonkers, New York, decided to go on a spending spree. In just four short hours, Bertha managed to purchase $110 worth of candy and toys at stores in her neighborhood. That's approximately $2,100 today. She started a buying spree with the help of her friend Helen Semendy, but pretty soon more and more friends, in quote, were helping her. Some of these friends, if you can call them that, spent her money on slot machines in an effort to win various prizes. Luckily, David Astor, a store proprietor at 218 Warburton Avenue, he became suspicious when he saw such a young child with nearly $20 on her. Today, that's no big deal, but back then, that was a lot of money. So he called police, and soon Dad was notified. It turns out that Dad had been saving the money at home and Bertha had found his hidden stash. Uh Uh-oh. She blew through $110 of the $130 originally in the money roll. Quote, You just can't keep up with the younger generation, said Police Sergeant William Coney. He continued, They are stepping faster than ever. In our next story, on January 7th of 1950, It was reported that Railway Express clerk Steve Flaherty had a 70-pound or 32-kilogram box of ants sitting on his desk in the basement of Pennsylvania Station in Pittsburgh. 70 pounds of ants! Holy cow, that's a lot of ants! He had brought them in from the warehouse because he was afraid that they would freeze to death if they were left there. The package was addressed to the Union Firebrick Company, but Steve was unable to contact anyone there by phone because the firebrick company was closed for the weekend. He said, quote, I don't know whether them ants is alive or dead in there. I sure wouldn't know what to feed them. It was later determined that the ants were purchased by an executive at the firebrick company for his daughter. The ants were in a glass box, that's why they weighed so much, and that allowed viewers to see them digging tunnels under the surface. They have been shipped by a California company who's marketing them as an Ant Circus. Now if they had only changed the name to an Ant Farm, they could have made millions of dollars. Finally, everyone knows how difficult it is to get a good parking spot on city streets. Well, the story of Mr. and Mrs. Gerald Oppenheimer of Kansas City is the perfect example. On the evening of January 2, 1961, the Oppenheimers decided to go downtown to go ice skating. They parked their car a long distance from the skating ring, and they hoofed it there on foot. That's when Mrs. Oppenheimer noticed that there was a parking spot much closer to the skating ring. While Mrs. Oppenheimer protected the spot, her husband went back to get the car. She waved the first car on, but it insisted on taking that spot. But Mrs. Oppenheimer, she firmly stood her ground. But as soon as she turned her back, a woman jumped out of the other car and just started pounding her. When Mr. Oppenheimer arrived with the car, the two women were involved in quite the catfight, and he had to separate them. And that's when the other driver, he just, he just pulled his car into that parking spot. Needless to say, the police had to be called, and Mr. Oppenheimer well, he never did get that parking spot. So early in the podcast, I had asked you which state was the first to officially designate Labor Day as a holiday. Did you have any clue as to what the answer was? Well, the answer is Oregon. They made Labor Day an official holiday in 1887. You see, in the 1800s, as the workforce shifted from agricultural to manufacturing... Worker conditions, as you probably know, were downright awful. Many people, including children, had to work long hours seven days a week in incredibly unsafe conditions just to make ends meet. This gave rise to labor movements, which organized workers to strike and hold out for better pay, for better hours, and of course, for better work conditions. On September 5th, 1882, 10,000 New York City workers took the day off from work, which meant they would lose a day's pay, but they did this so they could march as one powerful voice from City Hall to Union Square. From that initial event, the idea of having a day to honor workers started to take hold across the country. Oregon may have been the first, but soon other states made Labor Day a recognized holiday. The federal government, however, they wouldn't budge on making Labor Day a national holiday. But things began to change on May 11th of 1894. That's when employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago went on strike. On June 26th, Eugene V. Debs, who was the head of the American Railroad Union, and that's the same guy I mentioned while I was talking about filter fish in the last episode, he called for a nationwide boycott of all trains that carried Pullman cars. The railroads were brought to a near standstill, so the federal government got an injunction to prevent the Union from interfering with the trains. But when the Union refused to back down, President Grover Cleveland sent in army troops to keep the strikers from obstructing the trains. That led to massive rioting and numerous deaths, and that caused the strike to collapse. In an effort to make peace with the labor unions, President Cleveland and Congress called for the federal establishment of Labor Day. The legislation was quickly pushed through Congress and signed into law just six days after the Pullman strike ended. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I just wanted to mention that I was approached by a publisher last week in regards to writing another book. It is something that I'm seriously thinking about, but I am concerned that it will be too big of an undertaking. My first two books, that's Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, were basically just the best of my website in the late 1990s. But I have to tell you, just checking all the facts, cleaning up my writing a bit, and putting it all together was incredibly time-consuming. This time, I do have more than 100 stories that have been written for the podcast, but they want most of the content in the book to be brand new. Of course, that require an incredible time commitment. My other concerns include not being able to find enough great content to fill an entire book. After all, as you probably know or have noticed, I specialize in incredibly obscure stories, and they are very, very hard to find sometimes. I'm also fearful that the podcast could suffer greatly because my focus would be taken away from it. So as you can see, I have a lot to think about. And I do have a few weeks to hash it all out before I have to make a decision. I think I'm split about 50-50 at this point. I know on Friday I went to bed telling my wife I wasn't going to do it. But now this week, I don't know, my mind has changed. I'm leaning towards writing another one. I'll keep you updated either way. Just a reminder that the Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to RecordedHistory.net to learn all about the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye!